Leviticus 22, as we come to the section where we left off last week there around verse uh, 21 or so, at this point God is speaking to the children of Israel regarding what in a sense from God's perspective was an acceptable or an unacceptable offering made unto the Lord. We've been looking at the different sacrifices and offerings in the book of Leviticus and God in the prior verses there from around verse 18 down to around verse 21 was speaking to them how they were to offer their offerings of their own free will that it was to be voluntary and that when they gave their offerings unto the Lord, that it wasn't to be by compulsion or obligation. Again, God, the Bible tells us, loves a cheerful giver and he wants, whether it's our worship or our time or our energies or our efforts, uh, that we would give those things unto the Lord out of the gratitude and appreciation of our heart. And God spoke about how the offerings that they were to bring, and we've seen this many times in the book of Leviticus, that they were to be without blemish or without defects. And Again, the first and foremost reason, of course, we know for that is because all of these things prefigure or foreshadow uh, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And even as Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Bible says, who takes away the sin of the world, the ultimate fulfillment uh, of things like the Passover lamb and so forth, Jesus was that lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus had no inherent sin. He committed no sin. And so a lot of these things that we find throughout the Old Testament and the sacrifices and the feasts, as we'll see in chapter 23 as well, they all picture and portray Christ. So because of that, there were certain uh, stipulations that God would put upon the way in which they were to worship, and therefore these sacrifices uh, were to be inspected, and they were to come in a way with an offering that was acceptable. It wasn't to have defects. Now, with that same train of thought as sort of a backdrop, that brings us, as we continue on into verse 22, where God has just said to them, uh, don't bring an offering uh, that has a defect because it won't be accepted. It's almost as if God, you know, he knows our humanity and sometimes we need a little extra instruction. And it's amazing how well God knows us. Again, the Bible says that we're sheep uh, and we all know what the nature of a sheep typically is. So God says, just in case that wasn't clear enough, it's almost as if he says, let me give you a little more instruction. This is what I'm referring to when I say, don't bring me a defective offering with a blemish in it. He says, verse 22 in chapter 22, those that are blind or broken or maimed uh, or an animal, notice that has an ulcer. The idea is some kind of oozing open sore or eczema or scabs. He says, you shall not offer these to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord, either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, so some type of deformity because of the way in which it was born or maybe some traumatic thing that happened to it, you know, part of its limb got severed or something like that uh, in some type of a, maybe a fight with another animal. He says, you shall not offer, you may offer these, excuse me, as a free will offering, but for a vow, that is for one of the required offerings, uh, God says, this shall not be accepted. Verse 24, you shall not offer to the Lord what is, notice, bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land, nor shall you take from a foreigner's hand any of these as the bread of your God because of their corruption that's in them. <clears throat> 
and defects are in them, and they shall not be accepted on your behalf. Now, the simple reading of these verses very clearly indicate to us that God knows our tendency as human beings. I mean, the very fact that God would say prior to this, do not bring me an offering with a defect or a blemish in it, and then he would need to go on for the next three or four verses and spell out, look, I'm talking about an animal that's got you know, uh, some crushed limb or that's got an oozing sore or a scab eczema all over it or an animal that is basically in essence like roadkill. I mean, imagine picking up a roadkill. Hey, well, it looks like something hit this. Let's bring this down to the temple and, and offer it to God. It doesn't have any purpose anyway. And the fact that God feels the need to go on and further expound shows you how well he knows our tendency to give to him, in essence, our castoffs. Uh, and by the word castoffs, what I, in essence, mean is that which is used or you know maybe broken, something that's defective, what we're ready to dispose of. It's, if we could be honest, it's, it's kind of like the goodwill syndrome where all of a sudden we maybe have clothing articles that are worn out or we don't have much use for them anymore or a furniture piece or something. We say, like, we're just going to dispose of this. Hey, let's bring that down to the goodwill. I mean, it's, it's no good for us anymore, so it doesn't really have any real purpose. It's not necessarily that valuable to us. So that kind of stuff we bring to the goodwill. And God knows that we actually, sadly, can have that tendency even towards him in spiritual things where we are prone to present to God in some ways almost our, like our leftovers. Uh, and the reality being is that because of who he is and what he's done, that's such a contradiction to the way it ought to be in our hearts, is it not? God deserves our best, the absolute best that we can give to him, whether it's our time or our energy or efforts or the part of our life that we offer to him to serve him or our resources or possessions. Uh, you know, how tragic that we are prone to present to God our leftovers, our, our castoffs. And we can all be guilty of this at times. I mean, think of how many times, you know, even among God's people, among Christians today, it's, that tends to be the mindset, whether recognized or not, with people's attitude towards worship and serving the Lord and reading God's word and times of prayer and using their life for God's purposes where, you know, me first and family first and doing everything we got to do first. And if we have some leftover time afterwards, then we'll worship the Lord. If it fits into our schedule, then we'll pray. If we have some leftover time after we do this and this and take care of all these other things, which I understand are a natural part of everyday life and experience, but the mentality becomes, many times very uncomfortable, whenever we then have leftover time, if we have time left in our schedule, then we'll tend to the things of God. When the reality is that's such an inversion, is it not? That's such a backwards mindset to the way it ought to be. And what does that reveal about the attitude of our hearts towards God? And the value that we place upon God, that we would actually allow ourselves a time to, hey, if I have energy left, then I'll use it to serve the Lord. And I think of how tragic it is, you know, so many of our young people even, where that's kind of the mindset a lot of times, and I think the devil manipulates this, 
in a young person who knows the Lord and loves the Lord, where their mentality is, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I'm saved, I understand the message of the gospel, but, I mean, listen, I need to have fun now, and, and there are so many other, you know, opportunities. Look, when I have some time later on, at the end of my life, then I'll really get serious about the Lord and really be passionate for the Lord and serve the Lord. And the idea there is what? I'll give God the leftovers. The latter part of my life, not the best part of my life, when I have lots of energy and talent and, and passion and strength that, that youthfulness brings, and rather giving that to the Lord, the idea is, well, later on, I'll give God my leftovers, the latter half of my life. And that kind of mindset can pervade all of our mentality and it really reveals sadly a bad attitude of how important or rather should I say unimportant the Lord really is to us that we would do that when the reality being who he is as Jehovah God our Savior our Father our provider he deserves our absolute best not that we would give him the leftovers or whatever we have left afterwards he deserves first priority in our lives he deserves the best of what we have in all areas of life, the best of my energy, the best of my time, the first of my time, the best of my resources. The, you know, the Lord deserves our absolute best. And this is what God was trying to guard his people's heart against. And again, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we as well, we may not bring animals unto the Lord as they did in that day with the tabernacle and the temple, but the New Testament tells us that we too bring offerings and sacrifices unto the Lord. Romans 12 says that Paul declares, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. And Paul says, which is your reasonable service? And I've always found it so interesting that here Paul spends 11 chapters declaring the doctrine of salvation in the book of Romans and talking about how though we were under the wrath of God, the Lord's forgiven us and pardoned us and justified us and given us an e eternal place in the heavens and given us his spirit to help us to be more Christ-like and to pray and to empower us. And, and he spends 11 chapters talking about everything God's done for us and then in chapter 12, he, he then says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies. The idea of beseech is beg. He said, I beg you, in light of all that God's done, I'm begging you, offer your whole life to God. And he says, isn't that your reasonable service? Isn't that almost, I mean, it's just reasonable to do that. When you really think about who God is and all he's done for us. He's saying, isn't it just reasonable to dedicate your whole life to him, to give him your best, to give him absolutely everything like a living sacrifice brought and offered to the Lord. Lord, here's my life. Let my life be a burnt offering. Consume my life, everything on the altar for you, Lord, and to make it available to him. Hebrews 13 tells us that we offer the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto, our, unto his name. And again, as we think of that offering of the sacrifice of praise, I don't want to give God my leftovers in that department. Lord, if I have some leftover energy or time, or, then I'll... No, I want to give God my absolute best in praise, in worship. He deserves worship. He's worthy of my worship. Even as he was worthy of the best animal they could possibly bring to show his value and his importance and to honor him, the Lord deserves my absolute best. I don't want to be dispassionate when I worship the Lord. 
I don't want to give God, no, I want to give God my absolute best of my strength and my focus and my attention and my devotion because I'm offering to him that sacrifice of praise to give him honor. So again, just so interesting how well God knows us that he actually has to address such things here with the children of Israel, but he knows our tendency. And because of that, he cautions us to be careful, even as he was telling the children of Israel to make sure not to bring offerings that were defective in this way. Verse 26, he goes on to say, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day and thereafter it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire, to the Lord. So there God puts in as a part of his instruction notice that an animal could not be offered as an offering unto the Lord until at least a week after uh, it had been born and had time not until the 8th day was it acceptable or able to be offered. Uh, verse 28 he also says and whether it's a cow or a ewe do not kill both her young uh, her excuse me the mother and her young on the same day. Now, I'll be very honest, I look at these particular commands and instructions in regards to the offerings and how they were to bring them, the first one being there in verse 27, that an animal uh, had to have at least seven days with its mother before it was offered, the second instruction in verse 28, that you could not offer a mother and its young or its offspring on the exact same day. You were not permitted to do that. That was a regulation or a restriction. I can't give a whole bunch of understanding. I have to let the Bible speak for itself there in regards to what the purpose was behind that. The best that I can deduce from that is clearly when you look at what God's saying there, to do either one of those things and violate that would kind of be heartless. And callous. I mean, imagine taking a you know a mother, uh, you know a cow and a calf, and the mother and a young child, and, and killing it on the same day. It just seems rather heartless and rather cruel. And I think in this, if nothing else, God was in essence here giving an instruction and a command to facilitate sensitivity in the heart of a worshipper, that they would be cautious and be careful to guard themselves against becoming, listen, heartless in their observation and their participation of worship. Because it would be very common practice to bring animals to the temple, bring animals to the temple, bring animals to the temple. Just like for us, it becomes very routine at times to go to the house of the Lord, sing a few songs, listen to a Bible study, sing another song, pray. go And, and, and in our practices of worship, whether it's our private, personal worship at home, reading the Word of God and praying, and or whether it's going to the house of the Lord, there's a tendency many times that we have to be careful of where we can begin to become almost you know, so routine and mechanical in the things we do of worship where our hearts can almost begin to get a little detached and we start to get a little cold and heartless in the process and God cautioning them not to he's saying listen I, yes I'm receiving animal offerings but I don't want you to become heartless in the process here start killing a mother and it's young right on the same he said that would just be heartless and cruel and here God just showing his compassion I think is cautioning the people of God from becoming heartless in their worship and failing to appreciate that there was loss there was a life that was sacrificed 
There was an innocent life that was dying in place of you as the worshiper as you brought this animal. And perhaps God simply put these things in here so that they would not get cold and mechanical and lose sight of the value of the worship, the importance of the offering, and the meaningful thing that they were doing because we all at times can be guilty of becoming a little heartless even in our practices and observances of worship where our heart becomes disconnected from the mechanical routine that we get used to going through. In fact, remember Jesus himself in Matthew 15 even addressed that very issue. Quoting Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus said this. He said, well did Isaiah say of you, saying, these people draw near to me with their, listen, mouth and honor me with their lips, but their what? Heart is far from me. And Jesus then went on to say, and in vain they worship me. Now think of those two things together. In vain they worship me. Jesus said there's worship going on, but it's in vain. In other words, it's empty. It's meaningless. It's heartless. He says they're going through the motions. They're honoring me with their mouths. They're saying the right things. They're singing the songs, right? They're praying prayers. They're, they're speaking the word of God. And he says, they're honoring me with their lips. But he said, there's a complete disconnect in the heart. The heart's not in it. The heart's become removed from it. And I don't know about you. I've been a Christian since 1992. And I find at times I have to be careful of that. In some ways, I find it's even a bigger challenge for me because being very you know, routinely involved in the things of God and in the Word of God continuously and a part of you know, the life of worship, it's almost a greater danger for me that I can find myself becoming guilty of that and to have to keep my heart in a place where it stays sensitive and realizes the value and the meaning of it and that I don't allow myself to get cold and desensitized where my heart becomes disconnected. And, you know, maybe tonight if that's something that you realize you've been wrestling with, you become so familiar with the routine of worship that you've lost touch with the reality of worship and that sensitivity of a heart that's fully engaged and it's coming from the heart. Again, remember in Ephesians 5 where Paul speaks about being filled with the Holy Spirit and he says singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then he says making melody in your heart unto the Lord. It's so easy to sing through the songs almost the same way we could sing My Country Tisophy with our eyes closed. You know, we, we can begin to do the same thing with spiritual songs and worship songs and, and there's that disconnect that can happen and sometimes God wants us to evaluate our heart to make sure we don't become calloused and heartless even in the practices of routine worship good as they are verse 29 he goes on to say and when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord offer it notice of your own Free will. So again, we see this repeated refrain, uh, the, the offering of thanksgiving unto the Lord. God again tells them, listen, I, I don't want it to be by obligation. I don't want it to be compulsory. I, I want it to be meaningful. I want your worship to come from a willing heart from sincerity where it actually has meaning to you, he says. And on the same day, notice, on the same day that the offering was made, it shall be eaten, you shall leave none of it until morning. 
I am the Lord. So like many of these offerings that we've looked at in the book of Leviticus together, whether it's the burnt offering or the peace offering or the, you know, the sin offering, some of these offerings, a portion of the animal was put upon the altar and it was burnt and consumed in the fire. And the idea is that was rendered to God. But then another portion of it at times would be eaten of by the worshiper. At times it would also have a portion given to the priests as a way of compensation for their ministry in the house of God. And so a lot of these offerings and sacrifices involved eating and meals. And here we see this repeated instruction. We've already seen it before. It surfaces here again in our text in chapter 22 that God says on the same day that you're making that offering, you had to eat that portion of the animal and you weren't to leave any of it until the next day. Now, certainly there's a part of that that's hygienic and sanitary to you know, keep things healthy for the worshiper and for God's people. But there's also a part of that where, again, not leaving what's there to be shared in as a meal the next day. Again, when you eat something one day when it's fresh and it's cooked, that's one thing. But if you eat tomorrow what you cooked and partook of tonight for dinner, that's called what? leftovers and sometimes leftovers well some leftovers are better pizza some of them are a little better but usually most leftovers aren't the preferred thing on the menu they, they can be stale they, there's something lost in it and here god in essence is saying listen again with our worship with our offerings god says i, I don't i want your worship to be fresh i want it to be in the moment don't try and go back tomorrow and, and live off of the spiritual experience of the meal that you were sharing there at the altar of the time of worship and fellowship together with me. Don't say, well, let me save a little bit of that tomorrow, and tomorrow I'll just kind of partake of a little of yesterday's encounter with God. God says, no, I want every encounter you have to be, to be fully engaged in the moment right there and not to be offering to me what's stale, what's kind of you know, half-hearted, something from the day before. And again, we can be very prone to do that as well, where we try and you know, live off of yesterday's experience with God. And, and, and we try and offer to God the, the fumes of a prior spiritual experience from last time we were at church. And the Lord's saying, no, I want you in the very day engaged. What does the Bible say? This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And the same way, that same day, they were to eat it all the same day. They were to fully partake of everything in the experience. They were to be fully engaged. And I think when we worship the Lord, gang, I really think that's how it's supposed to be, that we would be fully engaged, fully engaged, loving the Lord our God with our heart and soul and mind and strength and being in the moment and completely in the moment. And, and here's a way that I could almost illustrate that. Have you ever had a conversation with someone or spent time together with someone, maybe with your spouse? And as you're spending time with your spouse because they have things on their mind about work or other concerns and things, they're with you, but they're not really with you. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, and whether it's you can just see it by the look in their eyes and you could tell by the attentiveness or whether it's because of today's day and age, they're talking to you and they're going... You know, and, and it's the same way with our children, isn't it, nowadays? You know, it's just, it, you must, there's a times where, with my own children, it's like I have to send them a text to ask them a question on occasion. 
And, and, and it's like, I want your attention. I want to see your face. I want you to be engaged. I want to connect with your heart. I want that. I, I yearn for that. And I think the Lord wants that. Again, not that we would be half-hearted, but that we'd be fully engaged. That every moment, every opportunity, every devotional time, that we, our heart would be fully in it. Lord, I want to love you with my heart, my soul, my mind, and strength. Every time I, I come to your house, Lord, I want to be fully engaged. I want to experience you with everything that it would be fresh and sincere and meaningful, not a drudgery, not something from an old experience, but that very day being fully engaged. And here it seems the Lord was again giving him an instruction in relation to that. Verse 31, he goes on to say, Therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who, he reminds them, brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. So as the Lord wraps up this chapter here, notice two things he's encouraging them. First of all, these commands and many of the prior commands, many of the laws that we saw in the prior chapters leading up to this point in the book, God here gives sort of this a statement of closure here in response to those things that I've instructed you, these commands, these regulations, these things. He says, verse 31, therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them because I am the Lord. In other words, I think what the Lord is encouraging the people to pay attention to is he's saying, look, I just gave you a whole lot of information would you agree, those of us who've been here Wednesday nights regularly, there's been a lot of laws that we've gone through and all these different you know, regulations of how they were to govern the society in Israel. And it's been laborious working our way through the book of Leviticus and some of these. So there's been like information overload. But God is saying here to them in verse 31, listen, I don't want you to just inquire or acquire all the information. God says, I'm looking for personal observation. He says, I want you to keep my commandments. It's one thing to know God's commandments. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I took, took good notes. I know all the commandments. I know the reference chapter. Of, I, I know it all. It's all right here. Locked. Got it all. I got all the information. God says, I'm glad you know my commandments, but God says, I want you to keep my commandments. God always wants spiritual, biblical information to translate into observation whereby we take, in a sense, what's in the bonded leather and we make it become shoe leather and we actually walk it out. And, and, and we walk in truth. We don't just learn truth, but we walk out the truths of God. So God says, I want you to keep my commandments and perform them. And boy, that's something that as Christians, we always need to be on guard about that we don't just come to learn more information, but we come to say, Lord, I want to learn how to live. And Lord, what I've learned, help me now by your Holy Spirit and your grace to live this out. How do I live this out? With my family, in my job, in my school, in the body of Christ. How do I live out by observation, performing your word, obeying your commands and implementing those things in practice? That's very, very important 
and something that can be a real critical component to our spiritual health and growth and maturity. He also says in verse 32, the thing that he was concerned about, that they would be obedient, again, as they were entering into Canaan on their way and would be among a lot of pagan Canaanite people. God says, I want you to obey me as your God because you represent me before the unsaved world. And I don't want you, he says, to profane my name. The idea is to, to cause my name or reputation to be dishonored. And see, one good motivator for obedience, though there are, are many, and certainly the first one is, is that God is God and therefore if he said it, I should do it. And because he's drawn me out of Egypt and taken me out of the world and saved me and delivered me, that should be a great impetus and a motivator. But another great reason for us as children of God, as we represent him, as they were going into the land of Canaan, God says, you're going to represent me before all these pagan Canaanite people. And if you don't obey me and represent me properly, you're going to profane my name. In other words, God's saying, you're going to cause dishonor and shame to come upon me. And you're going to give to people ammunition verbally and mentally to want to disrespect and disregard who I am. And they'll be disinterested in wanting to follow me as their God. And God says, even among the congregation, among the people of God, he says, I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. So also the Lord desired to be reverenced in the midst of his people. He says, I will be hallowed. Again, God wants the reverence to be given to him, the glory to be given to him. The Bible tells us that God says, I will share my glory with no other. Paul says in the book of Corinthians, that he who glories glory in the Lord, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And even among the children of Israel, among the congregation of God's people, God says, I will be hallowed. The idea of being hallowed is to be seen as holy, reverenced, set apart, the one to be honored. And so important, even as we interact among one another, that our hearts would not just be to represent the Lord well in the world. That's important. We don't want to dishonor him and cause the enemies of the Lord to have a reason to blaspheme God. But in the midst of one another as well, our hearts should be in the way that we conduct ourselves, how we do what we do, why we do what we do, that we want God to be hallowed. Not that we want people to think that we're spiritual. Or to behave or conduct herself in a way where people go, wow, he, that's a really holy guy. Wow, she seems really spiritual. God says, no, I will be hallowed. I will be hallowed. That, that God would be the one who our attention is upon, that Jesus would be the one who is glorified. Again, as Jesus spoke of the ministry of the Spirit, he said that he will glorify me. And one of the greatest ways we can tell if something is of the Spirit of God is who's receiving glory as the result of it. If Jesus is being glorified, the Spirit of God is at work. Because Jesus said when the Spirit comes, that's what he'll do. He'll glorify me. He'll draw attention to me. Attention and glory will be given to him and God will be hallowed and be honored. Now, let's just take a peek here at chapter 23. We'll look at a few verses and wrap up in, in our time here in a few minutes but chapter 23 and lengthy chapter is basically a chapter that lists the seven annual feasts that God gave to the children of Israel in chronological sequence these seven annual festivals or feasts as we would call them are basically like divinely prescribed uh, vacation periods almost that, that God in a sacred way told the children of Israel listen I want to have seven appointments a year with you. Can, can you just put that right into your calendar? 
Here's the dates and the sequences. He's going to tell them exactly when. He says, look, it's the beginning of the year. Now, the beginning of their year is, is different than ours. The beginning of a Jewish year starts around the springtime in our calendar, so it's different. But in essence, God tells them, listen, at the beginning of your year, there are, I want to have at least seven appointments with you where you will set aside time, detach from what you're doing, and spend an extended time with me. And commemorate the things of God and reflect upon the things of God and his ways. So in essence, this chapter gives to us those seven annual feasts or festivals that God prescribed. They're, they're kind of like, in essence, biblical holidays that the Jews would detach from their regular routine and they would rest and they would reflect in some way upon God and his miracles and his works and they would spend time together with God for a week or for a, a dedicated time period and would just enjoy the Lord and spend time together with family. The first uh, four of those feasts that we'll see here, the first four all happen in the spring and the first four we'll see, and again, we won't go through them all tonight. Maybe we'll just sort of give you a backdrop, a, a teaser for where we're going next week. The first four will happen in the spring and they'll, we'll see is Passover and that Followed right on the heels of that would be then be the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then First Fruits and then the Feast of Pentecost. So all four of those first feasts all happen in the spring and then there's a gap of time and the other three of the seven feasts then happen in the fall. And the remaining uh, three feasts are the Feast of Trumpets, we'll see, beginning in verse 23, the Day of Atonement, which is observed, we see that in verse 26, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, which begins being described there in verse 34. So let's just maybe look at the first few verses here. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. So these annual gatherings, notice, were referred to in a few terms. Uh, we see here in verse 2 a few of the terms used to describe these annual gatherings. First of all, they're called here the feasts of the Lord. Uh, the term in Hebrew, when you look at it, literally just means appointed times. Some people look at the root of that term and think it actually indicates uh, assigned times, the idea almost as far as signs or signals indicating that they signified something specific. And of course, we know that they did, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But the idea here is, is these were festivals, they were holy days where we get the idea of what we call today a holiday. They were appointed times that were established on their schedules that they would celebrate and, and, and disconnect from their work. They would cease from their everyday activities. They would assemble together either at the temple or with their families and they would sort of commemorate the works of God and think upon him and the different ways the different feasts represented uh, different aspects of things from their history. They're, they're also called here in verse 2, not only the feasts of the Lord, but he also refers to them as holy, verse 2, holy convocations. Now that idea there, holy convocations, implies two things. First of all, they were public holy gatherings or, or corporate times when God's people of Israel would gather together 
and they would reflect upon God and the things that he did. For example, we'll see the first one mentioned there is Passover, where they would come together and they would commemorate Exodus chapter 12 when God delivered them out of Egypt and how the angel of death passed over them because of the blood that was on the doorpost and the lentil and how God delivered them out of slavery and their bondage in Egypt. Or when they would celebrate tabernacles, they'd be outside in those booths living outside and they would talk about and commemorate how God preserved them through the wilderness. So they were, they were public gathering times where they would get together corporately as God's people. And secondly, what's also implied is these were in essence, and I think this is the more critical thing, these were, I guess you could almost use the term like sacred rehearsals. These were memory aids. And again, I'm, I'm so thankful because I have a bad, very bad memory. And I'm glad that God is compassionate on the fact of those of us who don't have a very good memory. That's why Jesus has given to us communion as Christians. Again, whenever you eat this bread and partake of this cup, what he say? Do this in remembrance of me. When we celebrate communion in a sense, a New Testament ordinance that's been given to us as Christians, that's what we're doing. We're commemorating. It's a memory aid as we partake of the bread and the cup to remind us again of, of what Jesus has done for us and what he's fulfilled for us and what he's accomplished for us and to almost like going to the chiropractor and then realigning your spine so that everything is back in line again. You know, communion is almost that spiritual trip to the chiropractor where Jesus says, yeah, you remember again? You remember? It was all about just me and you and forgiveness and you brought all the sin and I brought all the saving and all the forgiving and all the washing and I love you. And, and it's not about this and that. It's about me and you and the fellowship that we have. And, and we're to, again, refresh and remind ourselves of what our relationship with God is about through Christ. And these feasts, in many ways in the Old Testament, were sacred rehearsals. They were participated in as a sacred rehearsal to do two things, to look back, certainly, as we said, and as we'll see, to rehearse the events of what happened in the past and what God did among them as the children of Israel in their history. It gave them time to discuss and rejoice over his deliverance at Passover or his preservation for 40 years in the wilderness as they celebrated the tabernacle feast. And they also were opportunities to be a teaching aid to their children. Because as they would participate in these sacred rehearsals and go through the feast, the children would then say, uh, Father, why are we living outside in these booths, these tent-like structures? Why are we doing this all week long? And it gave the father an opportunity to say, well, the reason why, son, is because for 40 years... Though we were disobedient and rebellious and we didn't follow God's command to go into the promised land, but yet for 40 years God was gracious to us. And he preserved us through our wilderness wanderings. And we lived under the stars for 40 years. And our feet never swelled and our clothing never wore out and God provided manna every day. He miraculously sustained us when we had nothing. And it became an opportunity to convey the truths of God from one generation to the next and to explain these things about God to the children. But more than that, the feasts also looked ahead. They were, you could say, really sort of like a dress rehearsal looking forward to what God was ultimately going to do. And the reason I point that out is because notice that God also says there in verse 2, he says, these are my feasts. 
God says they're my feast, meaning that they had a specific and definite purpose for God just as much as they did for the children of Israel. God says they're my feasts. So they weren't just a sacred rehearsal to look back at what God did. They also were like a dress rehearsal, which is what you do to get ready for what's coming. And see, we know, the Bible tells us, on the other side of the cross and with the illumination we have of the New Testament and the Spirit of God, that many of the things of the Old Testament were foreshadowings and pictures and types of what God was ultimately going to do in Jesus. So as they observed these feasts and they went through the celebration of the Passover feast, as they did that, God says, yeah, that's my feast. And every time they celebrate that Passover, it reminds me in my heart that one day, one day my son, 1 Corinthians 5 says, he will be the ultimate Passover lamb who will die once and for all for the sins of the whole world. And many of these feasts we'll see as we look through them together in our next study foreshadowed something greater that God was going to accomplish in Jesus. The Passover feast, the feast of first fruits, the time in which representing when Jesus raised from the dead. And Colossians 2 says this to us, it says, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, listen, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is in Christ. In other words, yes, were these historical feasts that they celebrate and observe to look back at what God did in their history and among them as the people of God in Israel? Absolutely. But they also at the same time were pictures and foreshadowings of what God was ultimately going to fill and accomplish in Jesus. And that's why God says, these are my feasts, because ultimately they are painting a picture and telling a story of what I'm going to do in the redemption of my son, in his first coming, in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, one of the feasts that they would celebrate, Acts chapter 2, and the second coming of Christ in the Feast of Trumpets. The Bible says that the trumpet shall sound and we shall be caught up raptured to meet the Lord in the air. And God says, oh, these things, they're a shadow, but the substance of it all, it's all going to culminate in my son. It all pictures that very thing. And because of that, it was so meaningful to the Lord because it spoke to him of ultimately what he was going to accomplish in his son, Jesus. And, you know, as I think of that, it just reminds me of the reality that this is why it is so valuable for us as Christians to be in not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament and all throughout the Word of God. The Bible says, Lo, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. You read Luke chapter 24, where Jesus is walking with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, and it says he begins to teach them a Bible study. And it says in Luke's Gospel that he expounded to them in the law and in the prophets all things concerning himself. Boy, I wish I had that mp3 of that bible study of jesus saying to them you remember this law in the old testament do, do you see how that actually that actually speaks about me how there's actually a person that's described in that principle do you see that feast how that actually portrayed an aspect of my life and what i would do and and, and how the bible tells us that the old testament reveals christ that there's a person on the pages of scripture. And as we study the word of God, we don't study it for intellectual information. We study the word of God because the word of God reveals to us a person. 
It reveals to us Jesus. It's pointing to a person. Again, remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders, the great error they made in their day. Jesus said to the religious leaders, he said, you search the scriptures diligently. You study them hard, for you think that in them you have eternal life. But he said, you fail to realize these are the very things that testify of me. And see, we look into the word of God not to just get spiritual information, more doctrine, greater understanding of theology. Listen, I think we should study, show ourselves, approve. I think we should know the word of God. We should be doctrinally sound as Christians. But the whole intent behind opening up the word of God corporately in a worship meeting or privately sitting alone with the Lord is to see Jesus. Show me Jesus, Father. Reveal to me more of who he is and what he's done for me and and, and let me see him. And as I spend time in the word of God with God's people or if we spend time in the word of God privately alone, the end goal is not to walk away with more information or facts, but to walk away having had an experience with Jesus and learn something new about Jesus and to be more in love with Jesus. And we'll see as we go through these feasts in our next study together how they were literal historical feasts, but they also were something that had a foreshadowing of the ultimate substance of them that they portrayed and pictured aspects of the life of Christ.